Blog Talk Radio. And I And thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is brought to you by Help for HD International and is made possible by our sponsor, the Griffin Foundation, and an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and happy uh, Awareness Month. Uh, this is my first show in May because last week I was in Puerto Rico. Um, hosting a Help for HD International Education Day. So uh, Lauren Holder took over the first show of the month, but uh, this is my uh, first time on the air in May. So happy HD Awareness Month to everybody. And um, this is, the, I think, the perfect show for uh, us to have this month. I have a guest, Sharon Thomason, on with me today. And she just finished a book um, that Help for HD International um, has published called Living with Huntington's Disease, What I've Learned as a Caregiver. And um, if anyone's read the Huntington's Post, they've read brilliant articles that have come out from Sharon. Um, Sharon has lived with Huntington's disease um, for years and years and years, starting with her husband, um, Paul, who had Huntington's. And um, then uh, Paul has passed, but they have a, they had a, beautiful, amazing man that I I know well, Randy, um, and he has Huntington's. And so now she is her son's caregiver, and she's learned a lot over her 30-plus years of living with HD um, and being a caregiver. So Sharon has been brave enough always to tell the story of what it is to be a caregiver, what it is like, and um, she's done that through the Huntington's Post. There's been some amazing articles that have come out of the Post, and so uh, Sharon and I talked for HD Awareness Month about this project and bringing those really powerful, strong uh, post articles together to create a book. So I'm going to bring her on and we're going to talk about different sections of this book, but I'd like to say that this book is dedicated to Randy, who is her son, um, and the dedication I love is um, for my son Randy, who has taught me the meaning of unconditional love, um, and really that's, that's what we are as caregivers, right? We really, really learn what unconditional love really means. So welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you. Yeah, let's start it's by let's start by um yes and um thank you so much for working so hard on all this. I mean this has been years of writing. So this <laughs> um, <laughs> wasn't done overnight. For sure. Um but let's start by talking about the first chapter which is is a very that people don't like to talk about, but we should talk about as a community, um, is, is suicide. Let's talk about the first chapter of the book. Okay. Um, actually, what, trigger, what triggered the original writing of that chapter was when Robin Williams committed suicide. And everybody was talking about it on social media. And in the different Huntington's groups. And there was a clearly divided opinion of how could he do that and um, it's always wrong. And then his wife made a statement that he had been suffering from the early stages of um of Parkinson's disease and that that was why he had committed suicide. And once people had that kind of an answer to, to why, how could he do this? Why did he do it? Then the, the discussion changed and 
that's when it became really divided. How could he do it to, well, it's understandable. And so I thought back to my own experiences with suicide. My brother-in-law had committed suicide in 2003 because he had always, he had been diagnosed with, with Huntington's disease, but he had kept working. But he had always said uh, he didn't, he wasn't married and he didn't have children. And he only had his mother to take care of him. And she was already taking care of two of his brothers who had Huntington's. And he had always said that he didn't want to burden her or anyone else with taking care of him. And, of course, none of us would have looked at it as a burden, but he was he was trying to do something that was kind. And mm-hmm. so that was one way of looking at it. And then my son had several suicide attempts, two very serious ones that landed him in the intensive care unit on a ventilator and in a coma. And that happened twice, um, once in September of 2012 and once in May of 2013. And isn't it funny how we can remember those dates? I mean, I, I may mm-hmm. have trouble remembering what today's date is, but but those dates are are burned in in my memory. And yeah. so I that's why I wrote that story. Um, and the way I structured the book, I. Um, I had in mind doing the the chapters in in sections. So the first five chapters are based on what happened with Randy, um, with the suicide attempts, and then um, subsequently being committed to the state mental hospital and what happened there. it kept them alive, but yeah. it was a horrible experience. They didn't want to know about right. Huntington's. They didn't want to. They didn't want to treat him because they thought Huntington's was a physical disease, and they were a mental hospital, and so he had no business being there. And mm. I, I refused to budge on them just letting him go with, without going into a, a safe, um, secure environment because mm-hmm. I knew that he wasn't at the point where he would be safe just just to be let go. I knew we would go through the same thing all over again. So sure. they were very angry yeah. at me. Um, they were very mm-hmm. angry at him. And mm-hmm. one night, I was actually coming back from from being with, with y'all in California for the yeah. first ever juvenile Huntington's disease walk. And yeah. uh, I got a call from him uh, about a situation that was going on there. And then, of course, I had to turn my phone off for the duration of the flight and when I finally landed in Tallahassee and turned my phone on I had several messages from him and basically a a guard had held him down in his bed in in his room where there were no cameras and had beaten him and I just can't tell you what it's like to to hear your child saying, mm. I've been beaten and I need your help. 
Mom, yeah, I can't me. even imagine. It was it was horrible. And yeah, of course. Um so the second chapter is about what happened there. Yeah. I, I yeah. I was gonna say I think that um the, the that chapter is um the abuse at the state hospital, but and and you know this was this is such an interesting thing because one lack of awareness, but then they mm-hmm. didn't even want to learn because you had a powerhouse advocate yourself, you always have been for the community that was there that could have taught them, but they didn't even want to learn. Um, no, and um, yeah, and but I will you tell the story just real call. quick? Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Um, so. Before we move on to the next chapter, I want to talk about what you did with the the camera and your phone and what they made you do. Because I think that this is really that's an important thing to talk about. Um, because people need to under people need to know that you even if you stand up for yourself, they may come back at you. And um, and that what you did to make sure those pictures were saved. I think that's that's important. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I was so jet lagged that. I didn't trust myself to drive over to the hospital. It's it's about an hour's drive from where I live in Tallahassee um, in a little town called Chattahoochee. And my first thing that I did was to I made several phone calls uh, and, and I got the kind of response of, well, um, you need to call so-and-so instead. And and I'd call that person and they'd say, well, you need to call so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And eventually I called the police department in Chattahoochee and they said, well, you need to call the state hospital because they have their own police force. And, of course, they weren't going to do anything because they were the ones, it, it was one of their own who had done this. And so the next day I, I knew... I had to go there and see things for myself. So I hired a social worker uh, who worked with Randy's private case manager. I hired her to go over there with me. Or maybe that was later. I I think I'm getting things backwards. No, 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 I did. I hired her to go over there with me because... I couldn't drive there. And he showed me bruises on his body. And I took pictures of them. And she saw them as well. And then she drove me back home. And then the next day, I went back. And he had discovered some more bruises. But this time, they sent somebody downstairs to watch us the entire time that we were visiting because they knew what had happened the day before. So I I took pictures and... They told me that I had to delete the pictures. Well, I knew that my Mm. iPhone at that time would automatically sync pictures to my iPad. So I I knew that I had them, and I had already given the previous pictures to Randy's uh, guardianship attorney. And so... When they met me this particular day, um, they had two security guards approach me as I was leaving the building and demand that I delete all the photos that I had taken of Randy's bruises and that if I didn't delete them, they would call the police. So I just smiled at them and I deleted them, knowing that I still had them on on my iPad. And then Mm. I went to um, 
I went to the uh, the attorney, and she gave me some some names of attorneys that might help. And I called, and no one was willing to take the case. Um, and I reported it to DCF, and uh, as it turned out, DCF is in charge of the state hospital, so it was kind of a a cursory examination that was very quickly closed, and so I wasn't able I wasn't able to get justice for him and that's something that I live with to this day well and that you know the this crazy part is that security guard may still be working at that you know hospital and Lord only knows what's happening there that's very sad um, yeah yeah and Just you know another the, proof that our mental health system is so messed up it, it is it is it's yeah it's just yeah. ridiculous and so often our loved ones end up in mental health care because of the psychiatric mm-hmm. and behavioral symptoms. Right, right. And, and they weren't willing to hear that. Of course, of course they, not. They, when I told them that Huntington's was a neuropsychiatric disease, they told me that that was my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so thankful that those neuropsychiatric guidelines have come out from HSG now that we have a publication backing us when we talk. Yeah, um, yeah. That, is that this, so you know, the Huntington important. Study Group came together. Yeah, thank God. Yeah. Because if it's not published by a professional or something, they, we can't get them to believe us. So um, that is one publication that I'm really glad we have to back us now. Um well, and even oh. even then, there were there were articles that you could find, um, and there was I had even given them the the publication by Jane Paulson, Understanding Behavior mm-hmm. in Huntington. Mm-hmm. They never read it. They weren't interested. No, and that was the bottom yeah. line. They just didn't want to know. Right. So, well, then the next uh, chapter is about Randy. Is oh, go ahead, Sharon. But I, I was just going to say the same thing. The next chapter is about Randy is home to stay, and even though I I wasn't able to get legal justice for him, I was able to come up with a plan to get him discharged to a safe in, environment. And yeah, we have a wonderful grant program in Florida that's called FACT, F-A-C-T. It stands for Florida Assertive Community Training. And they had, they had already met and been turned away at the hospital. And so I went to meet with the hospital administrator, um, who's like the head honcho there. And I told her what all had happened, and she took a lot of notes. And then we met with what they call the recovery team. That's the group of people that were supposedly treating him. And I told them that I wanted him discharged to a safe environment and that by safe, I meant living with me under the supervision of fact or living in a less restrictive but secure residential facility. And Mm -hmm. the hospital administrator said... um, she basically told them to make it happen. Mm. And yeah. so the next week we had uh, a Baker Act hearing 
uh, in Florida, the Baker Act is in place to involuntarily commit someone who is a danger to themselves or to others. And mm-hmm. it was under the Baker Act that he had originally been um, committed to the hospital. And so this Baker Act hearing was to determine what was going to happen next. And um, that had accepted them into their program. And we went through this whole charade of a, of a hearing but the outcome was what I wanted. They agreed to um, place him with me under the supervision of fact. And it was really a turning point in our lives. Um, mm-hmm. As of, of now, he's been home almost five years. In August, it'll be five years, and he's still under the supervision of fact, and he's doing really well. Being under the supervision of fact means that he sees their psychiatrist once a month. If he's too anxious to go into her office, she makes a home visit, Uh, a social worker, checks on him weekly Um, sometimes they check on him more than once a week and they bring him prepackaged meds every two weeks and it has just worked beautifully yeah yeah and it makes him in a safe environment home and but this is another thing about um, the psychiatric medication. So everyone talks about psychiatric medications. There's so many out there. There are, but how do you find the right ones for your body? So the next chapter, I want to move to the next one about uh, new genetic test offers hope. Okay. This, this is something I'm really big on because it's made such a huge difference for us. Um, after... After he had been home for, uh, gosh, I guess he had been home for a year. And he, um, he still had anxiety and he still had depression. And so... The doctor at FACT said she wanted to do a new genetic test for him that was offered through a company called GeneSight. Um, And it's based on pharmacogenomics, which is the study of genomic factors that influence an individual's response to medication treatments. And it was developed by a company called Assurex Health, and it's licensed by Mayo Clinic and Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and they uh, have done research And what they do is they analyze eight different genes as well as your metabolism. And they do a simple cheek swab. And for us, Randy's Medicare and Medicaid covered the cost of the test, so there there wasn't any cost for it. And when we went for his follow-up visit after the doctor got the results, we saw that it looked at four different classes of medications. It looked at um, antidepressants, and then there's a category of anti-anxiety and sleep aids, a category of antipsychotics, and a category of mood stabilizers. And all of those are the types of medicines that the symptoms of Huntington's are treated with. And usually what we have to do 
is we try somebody on a medication and we wait a couple of weeks and we see if it's working and if it's not, then we either increase the dosage or we try something different. Well, this cut out all of that because the report came back with three columns and one column shows you in each of those four categories shows you that the medication can be used as directed and that's the green category and then there's a yellow category which means that there's a moderate interaction and it's going to have to be tweaked and then the red category is ones that have a significant gene drug interaction and should be avoided. So it turned out that the one drug that he had been on, Paxil, was in that red column. And we kept increasing the dose, and he didn't get better or he even got worse. And so the doctor took him off of that and instead wrote him a prescription for um, it's it's one that's not heard of very often. It's called Pristique, and the generic name is Desvinlap. Desvin, I can't say it. <laughs> Desvinlafaxine, I think, is the way it's pronounced. And he's done well on that one ever since. And in the antipsychotic class, there were four drugs that were in that red red column, ones that should be avoided with with him. And he'd been on two of those and had really terrible results. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and well, in the and I know they were. Sorry, the, I know that Gene Sight was on. They did a show for us too. So people could go back in the archives, and there is Gene site did a show about how that works. Yeah, as well. yeah, so, which is nice to hear and, from them too. Yeah, based on our results, it's it's very accurate. They also did a test um, called the MTHFR, and it's one that looks at how your body processes folic acid, which Mm. Um, has to do with vitamins B6 and B12. And it's well known that a deficiency in that can can cause depression and psychosis. And so Randy's test came back with with a deficiency. And he's uh, it interferes with the creation of the brain's feel-good chemicals, the dopamine, the serotonin, the norepinephrine, the things that the antidepressants treat. And so because of those results, his doctor also put him on uh, something called Enlight. That's the brand name, which she said is like a medical food. And it's like the super multivitamin. It has mm. folate and all the B vitamins and coenzyme Q10 and omega-3s, and it's used for treating Alzheimer's. It's used for treating mild cognitive impairment, vascular dementia, major depressive disorder, so those things that fit right in with Huntington. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, I want to, this one, um, this is such a good uh, chapter. It post is about the two shadows and let's talk about that. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm on the show. So Randy keeps coming back and forth and here and trying to interrupt. So if, if I, if I stop, that's that's what that's about. Um, that's two shadows. That's that's about 
with Huntington's disease and you're occupying the same space, but you really don't have any interaction. And mm-hmm. it just feels like two shadows that, that pass each other. Um, we don't connect. Um, it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, life changes when you're living with yeah. someone who has Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and then this is, yeah, it's a great, it's a great um, chapter for people to to read and get into for sure. Um, this this one was this is where Hal Freistein stands up and gets a little controversial and um, and let's talk about the next two chapters with the question of life or death and also the death with dignity, seeing as how they kind of go together. Yeah, I, I thought that um, that these kind of followed naturally to the the whole mm-hmm. question of, of suicide. Um, because let's face it, a lot of times people in the HD community commit suicide because there's no other way out. There's, mm-hmm. There is no way and there's a man who lives in New York State. He's a retired attorney. Uh, his name is Alan Pfeffer. And his wife died from Huntington's. And his only daughter is currently in a, a care home with Huntington's. And he uh, is leading the fight to have death with dignity for people who who have Huntington's and other terminal neurodegenerative diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically his argument is that although there's a handful of states and maybe 20 or so additional states that have bills pending that allow a form of death with dignity, uh, it doesn't work for people with Huntington's. Um, that is correct. Everything yeah. that currently exists is modeled on the Oregon law. And according mm-hmm. to the Oregon law, the patient has to be at least 18, has to be capable. Um, so in other words, they, they couldn't have a guardian that makes decisions for them. They have to be diagnosed with a terminal illness and within six months of death as certified by two physicians. We know that that can't be predicted in Huntington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, the patient has to make two oral requests to his or her physician separated by at least 15 days. Well, at some point, most people with Huntington's lose the ability to speak. So how are you going to make mm-hmm. an oral request? Your, right. The patient also has to provide a written request signed in the presence of two witnesses. Well, that's not going to happen either. Um, The prescribing physician and a consulting physician have to confirm the diagnosis, the prognosis, you know, how long basically say they have less than six months to live, and they have to decide whether the patient is capable or if their judgment is impaired by a psychiatric or psychological disorder and inform them of feasible alternatives, including comfort care, hospice care, pain control. Um, mm-hmm. They have to request that the patient they can't require it, but they have to request that the patient notify his or her next of kin 
and the patient has to be able to self-administer the medication mm-hmm. by swallowing. And if the pills yeah. are dropped or regurgitated or the patient regains consciousness, there's not a second chance. Right, right. And you know what I, I find this, you know, this whole, when we went into this whole um, thought of we, we started talking about die with, uh, death with dignity and, and talking as a company and, and as a community about it, I, I mean, it's so funny. Everyone has their own stance and their own beliefs. And, and we're not saying that, that we want people to, at the end stage, take this is a personal choice. It's a personal choice. Right. We are just saying, we're saying that we should have the same rights as cancer patients, as, you know, the, all these people that have the right in California, we are one of those states that have it. Huntington's does not apply. Um, we should have the same rights as a community, as other communities that really have so much suffering at the end of life. Um, right. We, we, we deserve the and, same. And, the same. And, and what people decide is what people decide. That's their choice. But we should have the same rights. Yeah, and we, we published a statement to that effect. And, and that yeah. um, official statement or, or position is available on our website. And, you know, some people, my brother, in my family, perfect example my husband would never have chosen that he fought to live as long as he possibly could because he wanted to see our son grow up mm-hmm. his brother yeah. the one who committed suicide was the opposite yeah yeah it's a personal choice yeah um so let's talk about this next one because this is another controversial topic, which is hypersexuality. And it shouldn't be because what this is like my favorite thing to talk about. Um, I like to talk about it because I like to make help people realize they're not alone. I dealt with hypersexuality with my husband. Um, a lot of us do deal with hyper, a hypo, um, different stuff that happens with sexuality. And so here's another article that I think is very brave but very needed within our community. Yeah, this is a, a huge issue, and it's just not talked about. And this is another one of those things that that emerged from conversations on Facebook. And so I did some research on it. Um, that showed there was an article in Huntington's Disease News that showed that 75% of women and 85% of men with Huntington's report difficulties in their sexual relations. Well, one of the, the things that's talked about is very openly is loss of interest in sexual relations. But hypersexuality, wanting to have sex all the time and and, uh, inappropriate sexual behavior is not talked about very often. In fact, it's often downplayed as something that doesn't occur very often. But that same article in um, Huntington's Disease News says, that uh, it's a result of the disinhibition that happens because of damage to the caudate nucleus, the part of the brain that controls behavior. And so patients who have damage to that part of the, the brain are much more likely to engage in any kind of risky behavior, whether it's um, risky sexual behavior or, um, you know, drugs or alcohol or uh, driving when they shouldn't be driving or anything, anything that's risky. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is I think that I love like articles like this coming out and us talking about this stuff because it's embarrassing to talk to your doctor when you go into the clinic about hypersexuality, 
you feel embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it in front of your loved one. I was it very lucky is. that um, – the what, Sharon? I'm sorry. I said exactly. It's embarrassing to talk about it in it's front of your partner. Exactly, exactly. And I remember um, uh, Dr. Wheelock kind of told me, you know, things are going to get a little hard, harder to talk about. So email us before the mm-hmm. appointment. Let's, let's talk about what's happening. And one time I just broke and I emailed and I talked about sexuality. And, and we went in and we, we went into the clinic. And I didn't realize that there was, all, there was actually medication for Mike. And they put him on a medication that worked really well. And, we, and, it, and it ended up making my life so much easier once he was on that medication. And, and him, the frustration I'm sure he was feeling. So, you know, but for me, it, it, it let me keep him at home longer because I was to the point where I was like, I, I, I can't have you at home anymore. It's too inappropriate, right? Um, right. Especially having children in the it, home and everything else. Things in kids. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So knowing my that there were medication. Yeah. I was I was gonna say my, my husband had he had quite a few incidents of, of inappropriate behavior. But one of the worst was when he went to my son's first grade Christmas party and he gave the teacher a very sexy piece of lingerie for a Christmas present. And of course she yeah. was opening presents in front of the students and, and the parents and that was so embarrassing. Yeah. 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 So I mean, did the medication make everything go away? Was it was it a miracle medication? No. But it definitely was able to save um us from a very bad situation because his desire for any type of sexual activity or any type of the, the pornography or any of these things went down mm-hmm. dramatically. Mm-hmm. So I was thankful mm-hmm. for that. And that literally kept him home a couple more years um, because that, yeah. that, that behavior gets scary. Yeah, it does. And, and it can even keep your loved one out of jail. Yes. Exactly. And, and I talk about yep. I talk about a, um, an instance in this chapter of a young man who went to jail um, because he was convicted twice of unlawful sexual con- contact, and his mother fought and fought and fought and fought for him. And um, he ended up being transferred after three years to a behavioral health system. And because of of his legal history, um, there were a lot of places that wouldn't accept him because he'd been labeled as a sex offender. And um, I think they probably didn't treat him fairly because of that, too, once he got to the behavioral center that that took him. And he choked to death on a grilled cheese sandwich um, while he was eating without supervision. And as hard as she fought, no one was ever found culpable for his death. Mm. It's just... The saddest story, mm-hmm. but but such a cautionary tale. Yep, yep. Um, let's talk about the 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 next two chapters because they kind of go together. We we're talking about agencies, um, bioethics, and as well as social security. So you wrote um, an article about bioethics and HD treatments and therapies. Sorry, my allergies. <laughs> and then uh, filing for disability. Yeah, the um, bioethics is is something that um, I wasn't real familiar with, um, but mm-hmm. it relates to um, the the IRBs, the Internal Review Boards, that make decisions about 
research and clinical trials that go on at universities, which is where a lot of our research comes from. And I really wasn't aware of this until I had to, the opportunity to go to Hanover, Germany to uh, an international bioethics convention. And um, I was able to speak to researchers from all over the world about why we need to expedite clinical trials um, mm-hmm. and why we need to allow clinical trials for children who are suffering from JHD and mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. all of that it, it is impacted by bioethics. So, you know, I, I left feeling like we had been heard, but mm. yeah, good. I'm not sure anything has changed a whole lot since then, but, you know, baby steps, I hope. Yep, yep, yep. And yep. then... Well, let's talk about this disability. Yeah, the filing for disability is a, a huge thing uh, for mm-hmm. our community. And it's not at all uncommon for somebody to be denied when they apply for disability. And there's such an alphabet soup that goes along with this. You know, you've got SSDI, SSI, you've got um, Medicare, you've got Medicaid. And when I started this journey, I didn't know what was what. I had Mm -hmm. no idea Mm -hmm. about the difference between those various things. So what I tried to lay out in this chapter is what each of these is and who administers it and um, also to make people aware of the compassionate allowances list, which is something that the Social Security Administration has that is supposed to fast track applications for anybody who has a condition that is on that list. And Huntington's is now on the compassionate allowances list, but you can't find it under right. H. <laughs> you have to look under A yeah. because right. it's listed as adult onset Huntington's disease, or you have to list look under M where it's listed as mixed dementia, and then underneath that, Huntington's dementia is listed as an alternate name for mixed dementia. JHD is easier to find because it is under J. Right, Um, right. Well, let's talk about JHD. These are actually leading into our next two articles, and and, um, and I know we're I know we're moving fast because we only have an hour show, but this this is yeah. all I will get in at the end. But this is all available. This book to to at your fingertips, um, and we'll we'll tell you that how to do that in a minute. But um, let's talk about what about the kids and also Health for HD host inaugural JHD Kids Walk. Okay, what about the kids is um, taken from one of our hype days that was held in Sacramento. HYPE stands for Highly Interactive Participant Education. And this was your brainstorm. Um, Let's have a part of our education days where we have a panel of experts that can answer questions that the audience has um, without identifying themselves. So you can ask embarrassing questions without anybody knowing you're the one who's asking. And so Mm -hmm. this article gives a transcript of questions and answers from that particular hype day um, with questions that, that relate to kids. And the two questions were, what suggestions do you have for telling the kids 
mm-hmm. you know, what age should they be and how do you tell them? And the other question was, with a child with JHD, what limits are acceptable? Like, if they don't get mm-hmm. their way Both. and they throw a tantrum, what should you do? Yeah. Yeah. Both very important questions. Yeah. Um, that's the great thing about hype is we get these great questions. Uh, let's talk about the, the JHD walk. This will always hold a special place in my heart because this was the first ever JHD kids walk in the world ever. Yeah. And it was held in Sacramento. You actually put this together. I know you spent months working on it and getting sponsors and we had it at McKinley Park in Sacramento and had a huge turnout and yeah. raised a lot, a lot of money. Um, how much did we raise with that walk? We ended up, we were able to give, I think it was, I, it was over 20000 I want to say it was about 23000 yeah. It It helped, it helped seed the bench at UC Davis. It, it for JHD research. It was that large of an amount. Yeah. 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 And it was, wasn't it out of that that Kyle Fink's research mm-hmm. was able to get jump started? Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It was a very and, special day. Uh, Just to look around, it, oh my gosh, to be a part uh, of that was pretty amazing. It was. And, and yeah. even though all that money and awareness was raised the the thing that that is most important to me the thing that that makes me always hold this so dear in my heart is that we brought together moms from all over the country moms who had been mm-hmm. each other's lifelines through social media and everyone got to meet face to face and participate yeah. in that walk. And we even got a tour of Jan Nolta's lab. Yeah. Yeah. It was such a great day. It uh, was. It well, was let's, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about finding a new normal. Okay. This is in a section that has to do with dealing with the holidays and the mm-hmm. idea that oh, let's, and then also sharing the gifting in HD. Yes. These two chapters go yeah. together. Correct. Yeah. These yeah. two chapters yeah. go together. Yeah. Um, holidays just aren't normal anymore, whether it's right. Christmas or Hanukkah or Thanksgiving or birthdays or, you know, whatever the special days are that you celebrate. They're just not the same anymore. So what do you do? And the key to surviving those holidays is finding a new normal, not expecting it to be like it's always been. Um, And and that can mean different things for different people. And again, as with several of the the chapters in this book, their responses from people within the community about what they are doing, what their experiences are. So it's not just my yeah. experiences that I'm sharing. It's it's from throughout the community. And then yeah. uh, the gifting in HD is another one that started with a post on on Facebook. You know, it's it's coming up Christmas, and my mom has HD. She's been in a nursing home for a little over a year. She's in a wheelchair. I want ideas for Christmas gifts, and yeah. people respond with all kinds of ideas. And so that's what that chapter is about. What are some different things that we can do for people who are no longer in a normal situation when you can't give them the kind of gifts 
that you've always given before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm let's uh, finish off the show with my two favorite all-time Huntington Post articles. Uh, one was a series, and was yeah. Um, grieving in in HD was actually a four-part series, and it talks mm-hmm. about the fact that our grief begins the minute we get either a positive test or a diagnosis, whichever comes first. And mm-hmm. it's a type of grief that's also called anticipatory grief. Um, mm-hmm. And grief goes on for years and years and years. And it's a, it's, it's not, it doesn't follow the typical nice, nice, neat Greek model where you move through the stages and, and maybe you cycle back through some of the stages uh, uh, of, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally you get to acceptance. Um, Instead, we just, we bounce all over the place for years and years and years. And um, then I also talk about the psychology of grief um, and why why that can be so difficult, why the grief with Huntington's is so difficult. Um, Right. And then in part three, um, I talk about also the grief that's felt by not just caregivers, but the people who have HD as well. Um, because they certainly experience all kinds of grief. And I talk about a type of grief called complicated grief, which is traumatic or prolonged grief. And that's really a part of HD and JHD because it can span generations you know it's it's not necessarily yeah. uh, one person and and it's done and and you know that right. um, because you go through it with with your husband and and you're already grieving for your kids because you don't know what's going to happen to them right right yeah let's Let's talk and, about resilience. Uh, oh, go, oh, survivor, go ahead. Survivor's guilt is another yeah. oh, big yeah. thing. And then yeah. the conclusion of the article talks about different ways that people have found to cope with grief. Yeah. yeah. And then the final chapter of the book is on being resilient. And that's something that we learn fairly quickly because if we don't, we wouldn't survive this. Yeah, yeah. And I think that resilience, yeah, yeah. And I think that resilience um, chapter is so, it's empowering um, and it really tells what we do. Um, to get through our our um, our journey navigating with HD. Um, well, they are going to cut us off the show. Leave it to Sharon and I to take it the whole hour. They're telling us we have like 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> if anyone can do it, Sharon and I can do it. Um, <laughs> imagine working with us. Um, uh, but, yeah, so you guys, every single thing, uh, you know, how to buy the book. It is available on Amazon right now. Um, those links are on the show page. So if you go 
if you go directly to the show page, you can click on that live link and it will get you, um, get you to the book. So thank you so much, Sharon. We have five seconds left. Everyone, let's bring a lot of awareness in May and let people know about HD. Everyone have a safe week, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. Bye.